First Peter chapter 3. Yes, we have made it to chapter 3. Why don't I just start out by, by praying? Lord, it encourages us so much to just remember you. I'm reminded of the psalmist who was in dire straits and prayed for the help of your presence. And just you being here is such a help. Your Holy Spirit, while mysterious, He is real and He is revealing Christ to us. And that's what He does. He longs to glorify and highlight the Lord Jesus. And Lord, certainly the last couple songs we've sung has done that. And we're just so thankful for the Lord Jesus. Lord, we just pray that for everything that we do in our lives, we would do it for him. And Lord Jesus, you would be our good shepherd this morning and lead us into green pastures where we can feed from your word and be strengthened and encouraged. And Lord, specifically, Lord, for the wives here this morning that your word addresses, we we just pray, Lord, that you would give them understanding and ears to hear and just a joy in their hearts to see that you have taken the time to particularly instruct them in their lives as to what your will is in their marriages. And so, Lord, I I thank you for that. I thank you we're not left in the dark. And, uh, And so, Lord, just pray you'd give them just the strength to believe and humility to, um, to subject themselves to this word, and we just thank you for it. And uh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, at the end of the day, as we just sang, just for the forgiveness of sin. We thank you this morning. We stand clothed in your righteousness, forgiven forever, and we just, we're just blown away by that. And uh, so we come to you as your children, not as no longer, any, no longer enemies, but those who want to hear from you and be fed by you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, I'd argue that the chapter break here, not very helpful, but we've got one. Because I think that Peter is continuing his main thought. And <clears throat> that main thought, in my view, began in about verse 11 of chapter 2. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, you'll notice that Peter, addressing these Asian Christians... After he's talked about their identity of who they are in Christ, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so Peter is emphatic that there is a ramification now for who God has made you in Jesus Christ, if you're a chosen race, if you're a royal priesthood, this has ramifications for you. And the ramifications on a high level is that you are to keep your behavior excellent among the watching world. And now he kind of lays out after this several spheres where this watching world is present and you are there and, and how should you relate? Well, in the first sphere he brings up is government. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, Peter says, and so on and so forth. And then he brings up the realm of servant masters, slaves, household slaves, maybe even more accurate translation. In verse 18, servants or household slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And then he lists out many reasons why this submission is to take place between the slaves and masters and between citizens and governments. And that is because in verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps you are to walk in those steps bearing the same type of suffering as he did. What kind of suffering did he suffer? Well, he suffered an unjust suffering, right? I mean, he's the one most innocent, most suffering, and the most injustice present in this particular suffering um, because of his sinlessness. But this particular type of, of suffering is... is Certainly exemplified in Christ, but it's something that you and I should expect we will be engaged in as well. And that's why Peter lays out what he does in verse 21 through 25, is that Jesus Christ is not only one who suffered, but he is someone who has called us to follow in his steps. 
And he specifically brings this up, Peter brings this up, because, I mean, quite frankly, it's just hard to be a Christian living in this present evil age. It's, it's hard because we live in a cursed world. We live in a, a world that's under the wrath of God. We live in a world that, that um, wants to do everything directly and indirectly to get you to forget about God, to want to replace the life-giving, um, the life-giving power in Jesus Christ with its own empty promises and deceptions, those kinds of things. And so it's working overtime to just get you to just minimize, marginalize the Lord or forget him altogether. And, and so living in this type of world with a government that is working hard and working overtime in collusion with media to get you brainwashed about all kinds of stuff and living in a culture that is decaying morally at every level, it's hard to live here. It's, 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 it's frankly hard to not want to become very, um, what would you say, vindictive or take on a rebellious, zealotry-type spirit, especially given the history of America and, and the freedom that it has stood for. Um, but in Peter's day, um, he was living in a society where government at any, at any moment could turn on you and could hunt you out and snuff you out as Christians. And so Peter's day was dark, our day is dark, and so he wants to write to us in a dark world where injustice is inevitable. It is absolutely inevitable. No culture, no country has a corner on injustice. Contrary to, 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 to popular American media opinions, um, every culture before America has experienced in, intense injustices, and I would argue in some ways maybe even more so. And so in this world of injustice, where governments are unjust, and, and in this particular context where masters were unjust, or we could say employers are unjust and unreasonable and greedy and all those things, how are we to live? Well, we're to live like the Lord Jesus. We're to be gentle. We're to be non-retaliatory. We're to take the big picture that, that our, our meekness with regard to governments and with regard to employers and masters and with, as Peter's going to argue, with regard to wives and husbands, this meekness, this particular behavior where we don't retaliate, we don't lash back, proves to um, adorn and showcase the gospel well. See, Peter has in his mind here that these believers need to understand that, that their life and their particular circumstances is not just about them in those small circumstances. It's about the big picture. It's about eternity. It's about, it's about a watching world that could be led to Jesus Christ through your gospel-powered behavior, your spirit-led behavior. Um, and he says that, that they might glorify God in the day of visitation. These who were at one time slanderers can be converted to people who glorify God. So, into chapter 3 now, he is maintaining the same thought of how to live in this world. In particular, he's going he's to highlight you wives now. How are you going to live, particularly in a marriage where you've got a husband who's disobedient to the word, how are you supposed to live? How do you think about that? And so why don't we read it together and then we'll start to unpack and we'll get through a couple verses this morning. In the same way, Chapter 3, verse 1. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be gained or won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair, the wearing of gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. And you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman." And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So the behavior of wives and husbands has uh, extreme is of extreme is of extreme consequence. Right? Think about that. The way a woman behaves 
before her husband, and in particular here, a husband who's not following the Lord, could bring about his conversion. A husband honoring his wife, dwelling with her in an understanding way, means prayers are heard and answered. And yet, when he doesn't do this, prayers are hindered. The way husbands and wives relate to each other and their interaction and their unity and their peace in the home is a big deal. And don't think for a second that Satan doesn't know that. I don't have this in my notes, but I just want you to understand that the first attack attacked happened where? In a marriage. So do not think that your marriage is sort of sideshow to him. It is absolutely front and center to get you divided. Now, let's start off by looking at the the beginning here of chapter 3, verse 1. Peter says, in the same way you wives, and naturally he's pointing us back to what's gone before. The big question is, what exactly? When he says, in the same way, what aspect of Peter's previous instruction are wives supposed to mimic? Now, initially, it seems pretty simple, right? Submission. Servants submitted and to their masters, and citizens submit, Christian citizens submit to their governing authorities. That seems pretty obvious. Well, I think it might be a little bit more nuanced than that. And the reason I say that is because down in verse 7, husbands also are told to, in the same way, live a certain way with their wives. So if submission is the common theme, that doesn't really make sense when it comes to husbands, because Peter doesn't tell the husbands to submit to the wives. So I don't know that it's as clear as it being submit. I think that it's more more general than that. I I think what we're talking about is that Peter still has in mind this general exhortation which began the section, which was keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So I think this is, this is, what is still what in, is, is what's in Peter's minds, that the behavior of these, these believers to governments, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, is to be excellent. And the way it looks like for citizens and governments is submission. Masters, or slaves and masters is submission, and wives and husbands is submission. But excellent behavior with the husband is a husband honoring his wife. And that's, I think, sort of the common thread through it all. And Peter probably also has in mind, when he's instructing wives and husbands, to take on the non-retaliatory, self-denying character of Christ as well, right, uh, that's stated right before chapter 3, verse 1, where he's talking about the Lord Jesus who committed no sin and and who was reviled and did not revile in return, and while suffering he uttered no threats, and he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and those kinds of things. That whole attitude of Jesus' faith in the Lord and his non-retaliatory spirit, that too, I think, is to be mimicked both with wives and husbands. Both are to watch their tongues. Both are to not lash back. Both are not to return evil for evil. Both are to entrust their souls to the Lord especially in times where they may not agree with their husband or their wife, or worse. So Christ is always the example, the great example to all believers in every way. But I think, again, all this is under the heading of keeping behavior excellent. So in the same way, you wives, you have a responsibility to be excellent in your behavior, in the home, when no one else is looking except your husband and your children. You have that that wonderful privilege and that responsibility, and that duty. All right, so, he goes on to say, in the same way you wives, using the plural here, this is for all Christian wives without exception. This isn't just for the one whose submission may be more natural, you know? Some, some, some ladies are just a little bit more like mild-mannered, and then you have others that might be a little bit more boisterous, fiery a little bit. This is for both. You can't use personality as an out. You know, I'm just fiery and I don't know how to control myself sometimes. Well, that, you know, you need to work on that. So this is for all women across personality groupings. And this is for all Christian wives. It's whether you've been married one month or 50 years. If you're a Christian wife, this is for you. And again, I started off in my prayer, I was just thinking that isn't it wonderful 
doesn't feel wonderful in our society to talk about this stuff. But for you Christian wives, isn't it wonderful to understand that God has a word for you? I just think about that. How, how, how freeing in a sense it is to know this is what God expects of me. You don't have to guess. It's very, it's very freeing to know like in my home, this is the posture I'm supposed to have. Thank you, Lord, for giving me that. Because you and I both know, especially when husbands are being jerks, jury, you know, seems out a little bit. Like, how should I be here? What should I say? How should I act? How should I respond? Well, the Lord tells you. The Lord tells you. And that's extremely freeing. And there's a, there's a real sense in which because he said it, we can trust him that it's the best way. It's the best way. That will yield the best outcome. So all, all you wives, this is, this is for you. This is God's will for you. This is his clear instruction. So what is it? What, what is his will? Well, be submissive to your own husbands. Be submissive to your own husbands. The term here, submission, just like in the previous context, means to put yourself under the authoritative leadership of another. So it's for you to personally put yourself under the leadership of another, namely here, your, your own husband. This is something you do, as we've heard Steve say, what, 50 times? This is something wives personally do. This is something your husband cannot make you do, and it would be a mistake for him to try, right? For various reasons, but, but that's... Peter's instruction here. This is God's instruction. This is something you do. You personally take it upon yourself to bring yourself underneath the authority of your husband. So the idea here is that the Lord has set up an authority structure in the home where husbands are the head of their homes and wives are the submissive helpers. Now I think that you know, some, some ask a question as to why, why the wives get six verses and the husbands only get one. You know, that seems unfair. Well, you could also ask that with slaves and masters, right? S- slaves get the verses and the masters get none. And granted, there were Christian slaves or Christian masters in the first century, clearly. Paul addresses them and so forth. But I think what's going on here is that these wives are in a position. And this is risky, isn't it? But the wives are in a vulnerable, vulnerable position much like slaves in the sense of the vulnerability, in the sense that they're in a subordinate role. And with the subordinate role, there can be exploitation. There can be abuse. There can be situations where it's very challenging. In the first century, in many, many uh, uh, situations in our current context, maybe not so much in America, but in other third world countries, um, the context there of husbands and wives and their relationships and the treatment that goes on in those marriages is, is fraught with challenge and hardship. And so Peter is wanting to give encouragement to these ladies. Like, I know it can be hard. I, you, you may be living with a husband who's not even a Christian and all the, the, the challenge that, that comes from that. But I want to give you instruction. I want to give you a path forward. Not only that will honor the Lord that's precious in his sight, which he mentions that, but also so that that disobedient husband will be turned to Jesus Christ. See, Peter's always got a mission in mind. He's always got the mission in mind. And we'll see that a little bit more as we go on. But I think that it's the reason is that Peter highlights more of the wives here is just because of that. Peter is dealing with more of the vulnerable, those that are subordinate to, to others. So, let's take a second here to remind ourselves that this instruction to wives in the role of submission is thoroughly biblical. Many of us already know that. It has been quite a while, I think, since we've talked about this. I know we talk amongst ourselves and things. But it has been, I think, a long time since we've had some public teaching on this matter. And I'm not going to take, you know, 10 weeks on it just today as far as just highlighting, highlighting this issue of submission. But I do want to take a minute to do that. And part of the reason, too, is that because 
some biblical commentators in 1 Peter actually see that Peter does, they, they agree that Peter does tell the wives to submit to their husbands, but only because of sort of the missionary context in the beginnings of the church. In other words, the, the gospel's going out, it's going to all nations, and now it's come to Asia Minor, and because the gospel needs to come, you know, continue on, therefore the wives have a unique role in this era of transition, and therefore they are to submit. In other words, there's no normative, uh, you know, exhortation or instruction to submit, no normative uh, instruction there um, or expectation, but it's something that is uh, conditioned upon the the time frame of the early church and that kind of thing. Well, um, I would say that if First Peter three one through six is all we had, then perhaps showing other reasons for submission would be challenging. But of course, Peter fits into the larger canon of Scripture, um, where submission is designed, commanded, and assumed through the Bible. So let's, let's, just, let's just look at a few places. So starting from the beginning, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I have to restrain myself. I mean, there's so much that we could derive from Genesis 2. It is the seedbed of all Christian teaching and theology, Everything. Um, begins here in Genesis 1 through 3. But in Genesis 2, so God, so Genesis 1, creation, quick statement on the fact that man and woman are created, male and female, in God's image in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we zero in on the creation of man and woman. That's what chapter 2 is. So, chapter 2, verse 18, God has created man miraculously, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, But in verse 18, something is not good. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. So God sees that there is something not good, arguably the only thing not good at this point in the creation story. And so God takes it upon himself to make Adam a helper for him. So here we have some sense here, some some understanding here that man is incomplete Without this helper, God's going to provide. Um, and the text explicitly says helper. I think, I think that's important. We're, again, culture doesn't really like that. Christian culture doesn't necessarily like that very often. But that's the language. The language is, the language is helper suitable. It explicitly says that. So this assumes that God is going to bring about a supportive role in man's mission to subdue the earth. Remember, that's what he said in Genesis chapter 1. Adam, the world is yours. Subdue it, civilize it, preserve it, keep it. This is your role. Talk about responsibility. And the woman is created to help to bring this mission about. So she has a supportive role in this mission. Man was created to spearhead this project by God's decree. And the helper is given to help this be realized. But at this point in Genesis 2, we don't know who that is yet. Just Genesis 2.18, we immediately think, oh, Eve. But in the narrative, you don't know what that is yet, if you're reading it for the first time. So, and, and you don't know that, and Adam doesn't know that yet, in the creation sort of development there, or the, the, the minutes and hours that all this is taking place. He creates man, man's by himself, Adam's you know, by himself, and of course they're animals and those kinds of things. And So what happens? Well, God, in verse 19, he, he brings these animals to Adam, and, 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 and he, he tells Adam that you have this privilege of naming them. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and birds of the sky and so on and so forth, but at the end of him naming these animals, you know, the lion, the bear, the horse, he comes to the end of them and there's no one left and this, the text tells us there is no helper suitable. No helper suitable for him. So the Lord does this intentionally. He does this intentionally. He wants to tell, he wants to instruct Adam, instruct us by way of contrast to see that these animals are not an adequate counterpart, not a sufficient counterpart to the man. So what does God do? Well, he caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And he slept. So he, so Adam, he's there. He goes to sleep. 
Perhaps this is the first surgery. Then he took one of the ribs from Adam. Imagine that, you know. God is taking the rib. And then he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord from the rib fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. This is supernatural. This is just amazing. God so intentionally designing this woman. So intentionally designing this woman. As he brings her to the man, Adam, of course, is awake now, and he breaks out into poetic declaration and joy that his suitable helper is now before him. You know what he says? What does he say? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is amazing. Now this method of creation of God taking the rib from the man and making that rib into a woman, (laughs) this method is critical for you understanding, women, your place in the marriage. This is critical. This is why God does it. This is why God does it. It's not as if God couldn't have created her directly from the dust of the ground, clearly, right? He could have done that. He could have done that just like he did Adam, but he chose not to. He chose not to. The way the Lord made the woman is crucial for understanding the purpose of a woman's creation. Now, reflecting on Genesis 2, slip over to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll bounce around here in the first few verses. Reflecting on this, We're thinking through origins and God's initial design of the role of a woman and the role of a man. But in particular here, we're focusing in on the woman. Paul, thinking back on Genesis 2, says this statement. Now, in Corinth, lots could be said here, but suffice it to say that there was a feminist spirit moving about in the church. And women, women were in the church and they were out of place and they were praying and prophesying with their head uncovered, which was a cultural no-no in terms of, in terms of uh, re- revealing your submission to your husband. It was out of place to prophesy and pray with your head uncovered or to shave your head, those kinds of things. Just like it was improper for a man to pray or prophesy with his head covered. This would disgrace him and disgrace his head, which, was, which is Jesus Christ, which we'll look at in a second. But... But Paul is addressing this feminist spirit that's existing in the church by pointing back to Genesis 2. And what does he say in verse 7? For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Again, you can just feel the culture be like, what? But the woman was created for the man's sake, the man not for the woman's sake. That's what Paul says. In other words, what he's trying to capture here, as, a, as, as he reflects on Genesis 2, he sees in the very process of woman's creation and, and, and the source of her formation, the rationale for her role in the marital relationship. She is not created from the dust of the ground. She's brought forth from from the man. Her origin is from him. So, based on this miraculous process of forming the woman from the man, Paul is exhorting the wives to understand that their actions directly bear upon the honor or shame of their husbands. This is what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 11. Links it all back to Genesis 2. So it's not a cultural thing. It applies culturally, but it's not bound by culture. In other words, it doesn't go away when a culture changes. It is rooted in creation. It is rooted in the creation of the woman from the man.
The wife is not created as an autonomous being who has the liberty to pursue a life apart from her husband. She is to understand that she is the glory of her husband. And she can enhance his name, his credibility by her submissive behavior, or she can bring question or disgrace upon it by taking up an autonomous, independent attitude. That's what Paul is bringing up in 1 Corinthians 11. So that's a big deal. Reflecting on Genesis 2. Paul continuing, you know it, it's, it's in his mind here in 1 Corinthians 11. Continuing to think about the, the Genesis account. He says also some other things. And he deduces the fact that the husband is the head of the wife from Genesis, from even the structure of the Trinity and reminds these Corinthian believers of this authority structure as well. So look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Actually, verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman And God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. So Paul is bringing up, the, I mean, the word repeated here is what? Head. That's, that's what's repeated over and over and over. Commentators, for some reason, get all confused on what it means. It's clear it means authority. It doesn't mean just source. It means authority. That's crystal clear. I'm not even going to go into those debates. It means authority. It means an authoritative leader in the home, right? God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the head of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the head directly over a man, and by derivation then over a woman as well. And the proximate authority to a woman on earth is her husband. That's the structure. That's the structure. That's what he's laying out. These three fundamental levels of headship. God, Christ, Christ, man, man, woman. And I think that it's clear here that Paul has in mind husband-wife relationships, not just all men are heads over every woman. That's, I don't think, what he's getting at. Um, because he's pointing back to the first married couple. In 1 Corinthians 11, 7 and following. Um, but, but fundamentally, Paul is, is exhorting the women to not take on a feminist mindset because they would be disgracing their heads, namely their husbands. So, so with these authority structures in mind, Paul sets up the rationale why husbands and wives are to maintain clear expressions of their maleness and femaleness in marriage. He's going to say that for husbands to abandon the clear expression of masculinity, that is to prophesy with your head covered, and women to abandon the clear expression of femininity by you know, not wearing a head covering or shaving their head, they disgrace those husbands who are over them. Like I said, he, read it again. Every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the one whose head is shaved. For a man not, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So again, Paul, Paul exhorts the women and the men to recognize their actions serve to disgrace or honor their respective heads. Women's actions serve to honor or disgrace their head, their husband's. And remember, this is tied back to our purpose in creation. When the, woman, when the woman takes on masculine practices or displays or a spirit of rebellion and independence in the marriage, their immediate proximate authority, their husbands, are disgraced. And certainly Christ is as well. Paul emphasizes the wife's earthly authority in the husband. We shouldn't, we shouldn't draw from this that wives 
should regard their husbands to be on par with Jesus in terms of loyalty and love, that would be a mistake, right? Christ is supreme. But the headship of the husband is critical for wives to recognize because it is God's design, and when it is not recognized, the wives disgrace their God-given earthly authority, which also reflects badly on God's good design. So headship's a big deal. Listen to Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. That's a wonderful text. Crown of her husband. But she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. Scripture is pretty, pretty graphic on these things, right? Pretty graphic. This is not a session to beat you wives up, but it is to say... What the scripture, it is to point out what the scriptures say about your behavior and the way that it can help enhance the sense of blessing for the husband and adorn the gospel well or bring disgrace. Rottenness in his bones. I mean, this is sobering. This, he says an excellent wife can be a crown, though. A crown having to do with, you, you can, you can, a husband can be proud. A husband can feel blessed, can be blessed, can be seen as wise. Those kinds of things. Or shameful behavior can make him feel rotten inside. You know, and, and we live in such an individualistic culture where we think our actions don't affect others close to us. And e- around every turn, some woman guru is trying to tell other women about how to go pursue your own passions, be your own person, be strong, be this, be that. Not that women can't be strong, because I think that's true. Proverbs 31, woman strong in the spirit, right? But not independent. Right? Not, not pursuing her own lifestyle apart from her husband. That's not it. But that's what the world is going to be pumping to you. And what's happening is they're trying to give you a different identity than God has already given you. And it leads to death. It leads to despair. It leads to infidelity. That's where it leads. I mean, I've been shocked over the last 10 years at how many instances of women leaving their husbands have been, have been prevalent. Not, I mean, it's horrible when a man leaves his wife. But I've heard many, many stories, and I think it's the, the proliferation of social media, where a woman is, is disconnected from her husband and starting to go away where she is no longer putting herself under him and, and she's a sitting duck um, for a, an illicit relationship. And it's happened. It's happened too many times for me to count. But it's important for the wives to understand that you are oriented toward your man. This is, this, is, this is God's role for your life. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and then verse 33, Paul says in another place, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she fear her husband or respect her husband. So here in Ephesians 5, as as Paul is speaking to believing wives, he commands them to be subject to their husbands in everything. Why? Well, he's two reasons in Ephesians. The first is husbands are the God-given authority in the home. They are the heads. That's what he says. For the husband is the head of the wife. And again, it doesn't just mean source. It means authoritative leader in the home. They are called the heads of their wives. This clearly refers to the authority in the home. The second reason of why wives are to submit to their husbands is grounded in that to which marriage points, right? What does it point to? It points to a glorious picture of Jesus Christ and the church. The Lord Jesus is the head of the church. We know what that means, right? Therefore, the church has a subordinate role to Jesus Christ. And this is exemplified on earth in the wife's willful submission to her husband. Also from Ephesians 5, it's important to recognize the scope of the submission. Paul says, in everything. In everything. This means that the wife is to submit to her husband in every season of life. When she's with him and when she's not with him. Again, I can't help but not think of Steve's 
uh, weddings that he's done because he has the same script. And it's always so good. But he says that a a woman's submission is to be seen when she talks to her husband and when she talks about her husband. When she agrees with him and when she disagrees with him. In small decisions and in big decisions. Because the text says in everything. If the husband has chosen to go a particular course for his family or as requests of his wife, the wife is to be submissive and obedient to the husband. Now, it's to be said that this does not negate the wife's role to help advise her husband at all. And this does not mean a wife must follow her husband into sin or against her conscience. But it does mean that when the husband has determined a course or has made ultimate decisions, she falls in line under his God-given authority. And she was always to remember that the submission ultimately is to the Lord. I mean, at the end of the day, when the wife has to ask the question, Lord, I disagree with him right now. What should I do? He's going to say, submit to your husband for me. That's what he's going to say. Do it for me. And that's, and that's just the truth. Because sometimes it's hard, isn't it, in the moment when the heat's there. You're like, yeah, he's, he's totally unrespectable at the moment. So how am I supposed to do this? And the Lord says, do it for me. And that's, that's what Paul's getting at. And this, this is an important point. Again, not so much in my notes, but this is an important point. You wives, you have your own relationships with Jesus Christ. A woman's submission to her husband and the husband being the head of her does not mean that he's an absolute head. The woman has a role personally with Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to stand before the Lord Jesus on your own one day. That's an important important thing because sometimes wives can actually flip this and say that because my husband's not a good leader, I'm going to do bad spiritually. That happens, doesn't it? You hear that from wives sometimes, where they will blame their spiritual health or lack thereof on the husband. Now, I'm not saying that a husband can't make it hard. But what I am saying is that ultimately, wives, you'll bear your own load. You'll stand before the Lord for yourself. Just you and the Lord one day. So just understand that. But also be encouraged. Be encouraged to know that the Lord Jesus is for you in this role. 100%. And he knows it's hard. He knows it's hard. His submission to his father's will was hard. But I also want to say this. It's, it's, common, it's common to... It's common to... Um, how should I put this? Some of you are coming... Some, maybe some of you haven't heard this before. I think probably most of you have. But some of you haven't. Or maybe you have and you've thought... It's optional, or it's not that big of a deal. It's sort of funny. But I want to encourage you to see it as God's wisdom. I know this sounds so simple, but just to see it as God's wisdom and a good thing. Not just something you're bristling about. Not just something you're always like, oh yeah, well, you know, (laughs) we got to submit Not that. Don't see it like that. See it as that which makes peace in the home most possible and brings honor to your Savior who had to submit himself. So see it as a good thing. It's one thing to, it's a good start to say, okay, the scripture is clear. I'm supposed to submit to my husband and everything as to the Lord. That's a good thing to start with. And I've talked to ladies in the past where they're like, okay, I know that's, I don't like it, but there it is. The second step is to like it. Okay? The second step is to actually see the wisdom in it. See the beauty of God in it. See the harmony of a woman and her, and her husband. See the role of a man who, 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 who strains before the Lord to lead his family in a way that honors Christ and seeing a woman entrusting herself to the Lord, following her man and her husband in a way that honors Christ. That is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. It's a rare thing. And it adorns the gospel so powerfully. So powerfully. 
But it's clear, thoroughly biblical. Wives are to be submissive to their husbands in everything. Ladies, how well does it go when this role is not recognized in the home? How well does it go when you and your husband have discussed, let's say, uh, certain purchases and he doesn't think it's a good idea to purchase this or that and you do it anyway? How well does that go? It doesn't go very well, right? This isn't me saying that wives have to run every little purchase by their husband. I think that would be totally unwise. Not, Not realistic either, probably. Um, but the reality is finances are a big deal. Finances are a big deal. I would argue maybe finances are a little harder for ladies than they are for men, maybe. In terms of just, and, and, and oftentimes it's rooted in the fact that the lady wants to make the house like this wonderful place. And that's a good thing. However, sometimes it's hard to keep track of budget. Right, And so you husbands and wives, you talk, and it's clear that the husband doesn't want you to go so far. Hey, babe, we're going to have to have a spending freeze for a minute. And, you know, and that's the husband's prerogative. And ladies, you do well to just, to, to just take those cues from your husband. Because you come home with a lot of stuff that he sees you don't need. Now again, I want to be careful here. Because sometimes as husbands, we don't think we need it, but we like it in the end. But take your cues from your husband. If, he's, if your husband is stressed about budget, if he's stressed about budget and, and you're, you're making purchases without reference to him, that's wrong. In the book of Proverbs, the woman, it says there in Proverbs 31 that, that the husband, how does it say, that, that he has no lack of gain with her. In the sense that she's always helping to benefit the family, right? She, she's a helper for the family. She's a helper for the husband. She's not just a helper for herself, right? That's not what she's doing. She's not trying to escape by making all these purchases. That's what happens sometimes, right, ladies? The, you, you, you make these purchases because it's kind of a way of escaping. And that can happen. And that can happen. You just have to watch it. You just have to watch it and recognize that all your purchases... Your husband, at some measure, in some level, he understands where the family is. And he has a responsibility to watch that. So just be careful. Just be careful with that. Make your purchases with reference to your husband. It's not to say you can't get a Starbucks from time to time and all that. That's between you and your man. But it is to say, make all these purchases and deal with finances with reference to your husband. All right probably said something in there that I'm going to hear about later, but not for my wife. No, I'm not talking about my wife. Maybe from some of you. Submission, though, it, it must also be said, does not imply whatsoever that a woman has less value or worth or intelligence or wisdom or less of the spirit than her husband. None of that is true. In all honesty, there are multiple places in the Old Testament where the women are the only reason a man prospered (laughs) in the Old Testament. I mean, you can think of Sarah's submission to Abram. You can think of Abigail's reproof to David. You can think of Deborah's role with Barak. There are others. Esther. This, this, This submission has everything to do with God's given authority structures in the home, not with spiritual wisdom or insight. And, but I also want to say it's not as easy, though, to say that... I also don't want to imply that women or men are wired the same way. There is a different wiring. And that wiring for a man does make him a more capable leader. I do think that there is clear evidence in the Scriptures that the wiring of the male temperament is such that makes him fit to rule the world and contrary to a woman's wiring. I think Paul actually points that out in 1 Timothy 2. But it is certainly not a wisdom issue, an intelligence issue, an eloquence issue, an understanding issue that she submits. She is no less in God's image than the man. It has far more to do with God's design of authority in the home and man's strength of constitution than anything. I mean, Peter does, after all, say that the woman is weaker, which, again, we'll look at a little bit more later.
All right. Wow, is it really 1232? Okay. Um, well, we can stop. Why don't we just stop? So we looked at Genesis, we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, and we see that there's plenty of biblical grounding to grasp this issue of a woman's submission to her husband. Scriptural prescription for peace and joy in the home and honoring the Lord and honoring, the, honoring your God-given head in the family. Um, one of the things I was thinking about, too, recently this week, and I was sharing this with somebody, is you know the culture, like, I, like we all know very well, is in complete decline morally in every way, our government becoming more and more tyrannical, those kinds of things, Um, much like Peter's day. And the question is always, what should we do, right? What do we do about all this? You know, you hear this or that, or this interview and that interview, and this guy comes out with a book, and maybe we should go hide in the hills and start communes and this and that and the other thing. What should we do? Well, one of the things we know that we're to do is wives are to submit to husbands. And husbands are to honor their wives. In other words, what are we to do? We're to do the same thing that we were to to be doing before the decay was at a fast-paced level. We're to be doing those same things that honor the Lord in the home. It seems ordinary, but it's not. A wife's submission to her husband is supernatural if she does it for him. Do Do not downplay that. And a husband's honoring his wife is a beautiful thing and is supernatural. It's a spirit-led thing. It's a wonderful thing. So, anyway, we'll pick up next week with some more in First Peter. So let's pray together. Father, I just ask you that um, you would just take these efforts to communicate what your word says so plainly and pray that you would work it into the hearts of the ladies, um, that they would... Um, they would submit themselves to their own husbands as to you. They would see that this is the way of peace, of joy. Lord, this is the way of true fulfillment. Um, Lord, they would not buy into the lies of this world that to be truly fulfilled is to pursue your own course in life. Um, so Lord, I, but I, I just want to just thank you, Lord, for how many ladies in this church know this very well. And certainly, Lord, we're all imperfect. They're imperfect. But Lord, these ladies strive for this. Lord, I just thank you for being among ladies that walk in the truth in these things. Lord, what an, ex- what an amazing privilege to be around them, to have our kids around them, that they know what they're shooting for. They know that what you want for them. And Lord, we do- I just pray that you continue to strengthen them and encourage them and give them wisdom in these things. Um, help them to know when, when what's too far in the home, those kinds of things, as we'll talk about more next week. And, um, but Lord, just bless them in these things. And Lord, we pray that we would have strong marriages here um, where husbands um, love their wives sacrificially and for their good and, and the women bring themselves under their husbands. Lord, just thank you for your prescriptions and pray you bless our efforts at fulfilling them. For Jesus' sake, amen.